You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Very excited to continue the series, Life Together, where we're talking on the topic of community over the, last, over the next couple of weeks, but let me first introduce myself because I am happy to say I see a lot of new faces out there. My name's Justin. I serve as the associate pastor here at Midtown, and if you're visiting, just want to say we're so glad that you're here and really hope that you find a spiritual home here at Midtown. And if it's not at Midtown, we'd love to help you find another great church here in Austin. So thanks for your courage to, to visit with us this morning. And you come in an interesting morning because today we're going to look at one of the most challenging teaches of G- teachings of Jesus. And it's particularly challenging given the culture that we live. It's going to kind of brush up against some of the things that we believe in the way that we kind of perceive the world in Austin, Texas in 2022. And so I'm actually going to tell you from the start, some of you aren't going to like it. So you ready? That's going to be real fun. It was real fun for me to prepare this week and think, they're not going to like this. But I have to tell it because it's stuff that Jesus said. And so the reason that we're not going to like it is because we're talking about spiritual family today. And the way that Jesus thought about spiritual family is very different from the way that we think about family or spiritual family in our day. And so I hope to kind of give us a vision for what Jesus meant when he said some of these things that we're going to look at today. And I hope that you guys will at least like be open to the possibility that this might be what Jesus wants us to be as spiritual family together. So can you do that? If you want to follow along, I'm going to try to answer three questions. The first question is, what did Jesus teach about spiritual family? Second question is, what does spiritual family look like? And the next question is, what does, uh, why does spiritual family matter? But let's begin by trying to understand like a Hebrew perspective of of the way Jesus would have thought, saw family from the start, and then when he talks about this new spiritual family, what was the grid by which he saw things? Because in their time, and in really lots of different places around the world, there's people that see family from much more of a collective viewpoint, whereas we tend to see things from a very individual viewpoint. And in a collective viewpoint, when they would think about family, they would think about caring for everyone. And they wouldn't make individual decisions because every decision that they would make would go through the grid of thinking, how does this impact my family? Because those with a collective mindset are thinking always about the whole more than the individual. And so the Hebrew people considered, you know, their family when they have to think about who they would marry. They'd consider their family when they think about their job. They'd think about their family when they think about if they would move. They'd think about their family if they were going to decide where to worship. They would think about their family in regard to every relationship they had because of this collective mindset. Pretty different, right? So we're much more individualistic in our culture, right? So when's the last time that you you know, try to get your, your parents' approval for things or thought about your whole family when you were making decisions because we are a very much more of an individualistic society where the collective group is not thought of. We think first about our individual. And that's the way that we tend to do the world. And that means that our primary concern is the individual. Individuals take priority over the care and concern of the whole family often. Well, we have to look at things from Jesus' point of view if we want to understand the scripture. And we know that, too, this is just pretty common to, like, the Western world. Uh, I know that firsthand because of several experiences that I had when I did campus ministry at UT for many years. Uh, there was this group of guys that I had the privilege of discipling, actually, when I was part of the church that met in this building. They were uh, five guys, first-generation uh, Chinese-Americans. And they were just wonderful guys to disciple with, very godly, loved my time with them. But one of the things that happened was uh, really cool was two of them uh, really felt like God was calling them to go be missionaries in China. And we were all excited about it. There was like actually a group of about 10 from this church, but these two that were in my group that just felt like God was calling them to do this. And I was like, this is so awesome. I can't wait to see what God does through these guys. And 
the thing that surprised me the most is the biggest hurdle for them going to be missionaries was they had to get their parents' approval. And I was like, why do you need your parents' approval? You don't need their parents' approval. Just do what God tells you to do. But from their viewpoint, seeing things collectively, that that's the way that they were raised, they thought everything had to come through the grid of their family. And they literally were not going to go until they could get the approval of their parents. So that's what we did. We prayed and prayed for them to get the approval of their parents. One small example of how another culture, these two guys that I know, had a very different collective viewpoint. Just trying to help you guys see what this feels like, what, what kind of grid they would have. I had another two students that were actually first-generation uh, Mexican-Americans that loved, they were part of our campus house of prayer, prayed with them hours and hours a week, wonderful, wonderful women. In fact, one of them actually led like a, a bunch of her friends to follow Jesus with her in her apartment complex. It's one of the coolest things I saw at UT. And they were super involved in our ministry, but I was really surprised that they would go home every weekend, one to Houston and one to the Valley, every weekend because their family wanted them to worship with them in the churches that they grow up in. That was just so strange. It's just this white guy, Western guy going, what? Why would you do that? But it was just that they have a collective view, different view, at least the two of them did. Or I think about an Indian friend that I worked with in our campus house of prayer who came to faith. His name was Pradeepan, and he converted from Hinduism to Christianity. And because of the collective thinking of their family, he actually hid it from his parents as long as he could until one day he forgot to hide his Bible at their house over Christmas break, and they saw it. And they told him, you're no longer welcome in this family. Get out. And he left the family to follow Jesus. I tell you all those stories, not to stereotype, so don't send me an email that I'm being stereotypical. <laughs> these, are, these are real people that I got to see how they viewed the world and how they viewed family, which is very different from the way that I was raised. What I'm really trying to get you to do right here is just take a second and try to put yourself thinking collectively. I know we, it, it's hard for us to do because most of us didn't grow up that way. Most of us don't think about family that way. But I want you to take a step back as an illustration and taking off these glasses, putting on these ones. I encourage you guys all to put on new lenses. These are my collective lenses. So everyone got your collective family lenses on right now? Because you're going to have to have them to go along in the, in the rest of this story here. Because Jesus is going to say some pretty difficult things. Let's go back to the passage and we'll try to answer the first question. What did Jesus teach about spiritual family? And Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, likely the closest friends or his disciples. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, my mother. First thing that we'd say that Jesus teaches about spiritual families is that he's creating something new. He's creating a new spiritual family, something very different from the biological family. He's saying, I'm starting something new. And he uses this word, um, the Greek word is adelpho, and it's used 342 times. Brothers and sisters is actually one word in the Greek, but 342 times Jesus uses this word, and then all of his followers just litter the New Testament with this idea that we are brothers and sisters because Jesus has started something new. Well, so one of the things that was so radical about this idea was, was they would actually be, in their culture, even more prideful as a nation more exclusive as a nation. And for them then, Jesus to say, I'm starting a brand new family, that means that this isn't just for the Hebrew people. This is for all people. This is for all nations. Anyone who does the will of the Father can join this family. He's opening up the doors to starting a new family and something new. What Jesus was also saying by starting this new family was that he wasn't coming to start a religion. He wasn't coming to start an organization. The way that Jesus wanted to view those that would follow him is this metaphor of a family, that we're brought into a spiritual family with one another. 
It's no coincidence, or it's not by accident, I should say, when we talk about our vision statement that we say most Sundays when we're here, we start it by this phrase, we are family, compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. It's not by accident that we put it there because we want to live into the new thing that Jesus created and act as a church, as one spiritual family, treating each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And since Jesus and his followers saw things family-wise from a collective viewpoint, they knew what that meant. That meant that they had an obligation to one another as spiritual family, that they could no longer think outside the bounds of an individual, but collectively that meant, oh, if we're brothers and sisters, that means we are in it with each other. We have an obligation to each other. We can't stay in an individualistic culture, which is why Jesus would also say this next passage about family in Matthew 10. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn man against father and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her uh, mother-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of their own household. Anyone who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I told you this was tough. (laughs) Because the next thing Jesus says about spiritual family is that our spiritual family should take priority over our biological family. That's not Western. (laughs) That's hard to hear. But from a collective perspective, this new family, Jesus was saying that if we want to follow him and be part of this spiritual family, it means that collectively speaking, now we're bought in with this family and they mean more to us even than our biological family. One of the advantages to being in a Western society is that we value individualism and because of that, one of the things it means is that probably none of us are actually gonna have to face that choice. We're probably not gonna have to face what my friend Pradeepan did where he was excluded from his family by following Jesus. But I guarantee this passage meant something greater to him. Thankfully, most of us aren't going to experience that. But I would dare say, because I know many of you, that your faith in following Jesus, for some of you, has caused conflict in your family. Not necessarily you've had to choose one or the other, but you've had to say, no, I'm following Jesus this way, and it's caused conflicts. And then there's others of you, praise God, who you grew up in a spiritual family of your own, that your biological family was your spiritual family because they raised you in the faith. And praise God for those that have that situation. So it's not that we're probably going to face this or that, but what Jesus is saying really clearly is that the spiritual family takes priority over your biological family. That's the point that he's trying to make. Now, don't hear that that Jesus didn't say to not love your biological family. Don't hear me say that because Jesus didn't say that. He's not saying don't care for people, run away from them, isolate or anything like that. He's saying when it comes to making a choice, one is more a priority than the other. I love, in fact, just to take it aside, just to know that Jesus wasn't saying that. I like that one of the last things that he said on the cross was he looked down at his mother and he looked down at the disciple John and said, you guys need to take care of each other. John, this is now your mother. Take care of her. So Jesus loved his biological family. But what he's saying here is your spiritual family takes priority. That means that spiritual family, if you think with your collective glasses, means that we're obligated to one another. And spiritual family takes priority over us as individuals. Which brings me to the second question. What does spiritual family look like? What does it look like? So if you can put on those collective mindset, when you do, you're going to realize that when Jesus talks about us being spiritual family, that means that we're obligated to one another. It means that we're going to look out for each other and care for the needs of each other without thinking individualistically. That's radically different from the way that we think and orient our lives usually, right? So we can no longer 
only look for ourselves, but always think about our spiritual family. No more American individualism. Instead, we see ourselves as part of a whole, and then we're obligated to that whole and to one another. Now, Matt's going to talk a little bit more next week about practically what does it look like, what does community look like in practice. But I wanted to just give us like a, a high-level glimpse of what it looks like. What would spiritual family look like? It's not unlike a lot of our regular families when they're healthy. I mentioned 342 times they use the word brothers and sisters. There's actually 59 times in the New Testament they use the word one another. They're called like the one another commands. And we did a great job talking in the earlier that one of the things that we have to do is if we're really trying to become more like Jesus, ultimately that means we're going to be more loving. And if we're going to be more loving, that means that we're practicing all these one another's together. Let me just mention a few. What does spiritual family look like? First, I just say it means that we live life together. It's fitting that the sermon title is Life Together because that's what a spiritual family does. They just, they just do things together. They spend time with one another. It means that we make time to be together so that we can practice all the one another's and the things that Matt will talk about next week. We do this because we want to become more loving and more Christ-like. So that means that we don't isolate and just do things by ourselves, that we actively engage ourselves in community in the lives of other people. So it means we do fun things. We just eat. We have hospitality. We invite people to our homes. We go to people's homes. We play, we have friendships, we have parties, we celebrate special occasions. As a spiritual family, that's what we do. That's living life together. Other, in addition to that, we also care for each other's needs and meet each other's needs. A spiritual family, because you're always looking out for the whole, you're looking and seeing as you get to know and you're, and you're living life together, you begin to notice where there's needs, where there's financial needs. We rally together and we meet each other's financial needs. We care for each other. We, when we have emotional needs, we, we write cards or texts or emails and support or we just don't write anything, but we just go to someone's house and sit with them. We're present to help in emotional times. Or we meet people's physical needs, cooking for one another, giving rides to the doctors. That's what it means to care for each other's needs. It also looks like that we help each other follow Jesus. We help each other follow Jesus and grow spiritually. That means that if we're in this kind of community together, one of the things that we're going to be is we're going to be transparent with one another. We're going to let each other know where we're struggling, where we're hurting, and where we need help, and we're going to come alongside and help each other grow. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to be this great community that, that balances both love and truth, where we have a spot where we can be vulnerable with who we are and know that we're loved no matter what's going on in our lives, but also know that it's with truth that our friends are going to come beside us and spur us on and, and help us follow Jesus more. It's also going to be a community then that practices forgiveness and reconciliation because we're going to get on each other sometimes. But as we learn to follow Jesus together, we're, we're practicing forgiveness and reconciliation. We're going to commit ourselves to praying for one another. We're going to read the scriptures together because we're a spiritual family. We're going to empower each other with spiritual gifts. And finally, on a broad level, what spiritual family looks like, it means that we're going to follow, invite others to follow Jesus with us. That means that we're actually going to be committed not just to being exclusive, but as we're not an exclusive family. We're always inviting other people into our family. We're going to and try to encourage each other to be friends with our neighbors and get to know people and, and hang out with coworkers and find places in the city to serve. We're going to do life on mission together. We're going to share our gospel and share the testimony and tell our friends about Jesus and invite them into our great family. That's what spiritual family look like, looks like. Now, I'm going to get to this later, but we all know it's messier than that, right? Because we're part of it, <laughs> and we're messy people. But for now, I just wanted to give you an ideal high, high viewpoint of what it could look like to walk together as a spiritual family. It would be awesome, wouldn't it? It is awesome. Let me just tell you real practically kind of how this has worked out for me. 
uh, Brenda and I have lived in Austin for, th for 31 years. And during those 31 years, we've been part of uh, three churches. Uh, one, while we were single, where we met, was here at First Evangelical Free Church that used to meet in this space here. We were part of that church from 1991 to 2003. If you remember, if you remember the story in 2003, uh, that, that's when they sold this place to Red River Church and they bought, uh, bought property and built another church building down, down south. And we tried to be a part of that for, for a, a few years, the first few years of the move. But uh, for us, we, one of the things that we really value is just building relationships with our neighbors. And we live pretty close to this neighborhood. We live in the North Loop, North Loop neighborhood. And so it just became a little bit difficult for us to drive south. And then we also thought in mind for our neighbors, thinking if, if our neighbors were ever to come follow Jesus with us, one of the things we'd want is them to be part of a church that's like in our community. And so for those reasons, we actually moved and, and joined a, a church called Hope Chapel that was two miles from our house in the, in the Crestview neighborhood. That was the first time we ever switched churches. And then um, when I was involved in the Campus House of Prayer at UT, one of the students that was involved in our Campus House of Prayer uh, one, one day told me about this church called Midtown and told me about all these families, these 30 people that were moving and selling their houses in Pflugerville in order to plant a church right in this neighborhood. And so Brenda and I were like, oh man, that sounds like it'd be really something cool to be a part of. We'd love to do that. So we, we got the blessing of our pastor at Hope Chapel uh, to send us to go be part of this church plant and join the core team just a few months before Midtown was started. Now I'll tell you all of that just to say that one of our convictions is that we believe that when we invest and we switch into a new spiritual community that we're going to treat that, fam that like family. And so the, one of the hardest things to do when we switch churches is we had to say goodbye to some friends. Not that we'd never see them again, but we had to say, like, we're not going to get as much time with you because when we're stepping into this new church, we're going to step into the spiritual family and we're obligated to one another in that family. And that naturally means we're going to see you less. We had those conversations and it was sad, but that's our conviction. We've done it each time and we say goodbye to some friends and it doesn't mean we're never going to see them again. Brenda actually had, uh, had friends with, or had uh, breakfast this week with Suzanne, one of our dear friends from that we met here that was on this stage at our wedding. So it we don't, doesn't mean we doesn't, don't see each other, but it means that we prioritize the spiritual family that we're committed to. I told you you wouldn't like this message. <laughs> but I think that's a bit of what Jesus means. It's at least the way that I think uh, we're going to try to practice it. I want to encourage you guys to do the same. Doesn't mean, too, that we don't believe in a capital C church. Don't hear me say that. Like, we believe in the church universal and our friends that are still walking with God and part of other churches, we celebrate that and we believe that they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is I think that Jesus wants us to live in a lower C church, lower, lowercase c church, and commit ourselves. Commit ourselves to Midtown Church. If this is our church, that we are then obligated to one another and this is my spiritual family. And I'm not going to think individualistically anymore. I'm thinking collectively, and everything I do affects this body. That's a radically different way of thinking. That is how I plan to live my life, as in how I plan to think about spiritual family. And I'll tell you why. It's because I've seen the benefits of it. I've seen the benefits of it, which brings us to the last question. What is spiritual? Why does spiritual family matter? One is because it's the context for spiritual formation. It's the whole context for spiritual formation. Like if we want to grow to be more Christ-like, we need spiritual family. And I'm not going to go on deep on this because this is really kind of what this whole series is about. Go back, listen to the one from a few weeks ago. That was the entire message was how community actually impacts us. But the bottom line is this, and Jake said this in the sermon, that if the goal of becoming more Christ-like is ultimately to be more loving, you can't do that outside of relationships. Like, how are you going to grow more loving with the questions? Like, with who? Like, who are you loving? Who are you in community with? 
Who are you butting heads with and having to learn to forgive and become more Christ-like? And who are you living life with and serving? Like all of that. The goal is to become more loving and we need that spiritual family because that's where we practice it. But there's a second reason I also find compelling. The spiritual family matters because it's a witness to the world. Our witness to the world is radically changed when people experience Christian community and that's living like we're obligated to one another, living covenant together. That's a huge testament of the world. When Jesus was, said to his disciples, you know, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Like our love for one another, our spiritual family, when others are, see it from the outside or even are invited into it and get to witness it firsthand, it's meant to be a witness to the world. What's partic- particularly powerful about spiritual family when it's lived out right is that it's among different people. You may have heard the, the phrase, uh, you, can, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. Yep. <laughs> Same thing's true of your spiritual family. Now, you do get a little bit of a say in the sense that you're going to pick which church you're going to be a part of. Even within Midtown, you can actually pick which Midtown community you want to be a part of, but you can't pick who else is part of our church, who else is in your Midtown community. You don't get to pick your spiritual family. You get to live with them and love them. Now, it's true that we're going to form natural friendships. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have natural friendships. You are going to form natural friendships based on you know, common interests, uh, based on personalities, based on stage of life. Of course, do that. You're going to develop friends. But that's different from family. That's different from spiritual family. Spiritual family and the witness, that it, and the powerful part of its witness is when we live with people that are different from us, different stages of life, different interests, different personalities, yet we still live as a spiritual family, as I just described. You know how powerful that is? You know, how, how, how powerful and fun is it to get like the, uh, the, the sports fanatic and the game board fanatic together in one group and, and still live in spiritual family? How powerful of a witness is it to the world when we see senior citizens, you know, loving college students and back in college students loving senior citizens? How radical to the world if we could live in spiritual family and have Republicans and Democrats who disagree on politics but their love for Jesus trumps all of it. How different it is to the world, what a witness it is to the world when we see married people and single people, white-collar people, blue-collar people, rich, poor, black, white, people who are self-aware, those that aren't, engineers, artists, longhorns, sooners. That's, <laughs> that's a stretch. I wouldn't have included that if things didn't go well yesterday. <laughs> in a spiritual family, it's our faith in Jesus that unites us. And when we're united in loving each other, it's a testimony to the world that Jesus is alive. That's so amazing. And usually people actually belong before they believe when they come to faith. Usually they belong and they actually start to behave before they believe because that's the testimony. And when we invite people into our spiritual family, that's what we get to see God do. I'm going to wrap up today by mentioning a big elephant in the room. And as I do, um, I invite our ushers to uh, begin distributing communion. Actually, you guys can wait on that. I forgot one thing. (laughs) My bad. I wanted to actually just kind of press down just briefly just on application. Still got your collective glasses on? Do you believe this stuff? I could be off, but I think this is how Jesus wants us to live, and I think it's a family that he wants us to create. The question bigger than, like, do you believe it is, are you living it? Like, are you living like this? Have you treated Midtown as 
your spiritual family and then start to see things through a collective lens by which I'm responsible for everyone here and they're responsible for me too and we're in this family together. We don't do things individually. We're always thinking about the collective and the good of our whole church body. Now, I'll be the first to admit that's really hard to do. <laughs> it's a very different. That's why we've got these different, sorry, these different glasses on. We, we need them because it's so different from, from us. Let me speak first to those of you who are Midtown partners, those of you who are yeah, maybe regular attenders at Midtown. To you guys, I just say, hey, put those collective glasses on with us. Like, let's live like this kind of family, and let's engage in relationship this way. Now, those of you who are just checking out Midtown, this does not apply to you. Keep checking out churches and find the one that God, you know, draws you to. But when you find one, do the same thing. Commit to be part of that spiritual family and be obligated to everyone. Make sense? That's how I want us to live. I want to challenge us to live. Now we can do communion, and I'm going to talk about something that's the big elephant in the room. Uh, the big elephant in the room is, yeah, this sounds all rosy, but it's easier said than done, right? Because we're, we're messy, and community is messy. Uh, I love this old quote. I can't remember where I heard it, but it's always stuck with me. It's, uh, to dwell on high with saints above, oh, to me that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints I know, well, that's a different story, <laughs> Right? We've all experienced that too, right? And the, the, the very big elephant in the room is that throughout history, the church has done this poorly. And we've wanted to be a witness. Often, we've been terrible witnesses. And I would say, not even just from a large, like, cosmic 2,000-year history scale, I would say from your very lives, you can probably point to something that happened in a church or a Christian community that you were part of that you would look back and say, that was terrible. And so I think we have to admit the elephant in the room, and we have to say, Yes, this has not been lived well, but let's make it our aim to live well and be that kind of spiritual family. I always like to say that uh, the church is messy because you're in it, right? The church is messy because I'm in it. Like, like this, this spiritual family stuff would be awesome if it just wasn't for people, right? <laughs> but that's just the truth because we're still sinful, we're still broken, and God's still continuing to transform us and form us to make us more loving people to live in this type of community. But here's the one thing I want us to think about as we take communion. And I love this thought. When Jesus started this new family, he knew that it would be messy. He knew that. And one of the things that he did to help bring his family together was to celebrate this meal together. Almost to have a regular reminder, even in a spiritual family, that we need forgiveness. We need his forgiveness. That we need God's grace to to come to us that we can contribute to the spiritual family. And that's why he instituted it, for his followers and those in this new family to regularly partake of this, to be reminded of what Jesus has done and that he's called us his sons and daughters and he forgives us and he wants to continue to do a redeeming work in us to make us the kind of family he wants us to be. For reflection on communion, I'd like to take us to one of my favorite passages um, in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, Hebrews 2 is a great book that talks so much about the humanity of Jesus and what he suffered. And I love the way that he speaks of spiritual family, whoever wrote uh, Hebrews, wrote about it this way. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of our salvation, that's referring to Jesus there, make the pioneer of our salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. While we've not lived Christian community perfectly, let's just remember that Jesus suffered to bring us into this family together. And I love that last line. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He's happy to have us in his family. And he's going to keep doing his redeeming work in us that we can reflect his spiritual family more and more. Sinful and flawed as we are, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because he died for us to create the spiritual family. So let's remember his body broken for us. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.